0: I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter five. We're going to read verses one and two. and by that, of course the scriptures will appear on the screen. Uh, we have maybe in your smartphones and devices, you've probably got dozens of Bibles, but don't substitute it for the real thing, the physical thing. Have it there, turn to it. when you have it open you can Just see context and and flow of the text. But Matthew chapter five, verses one and two say this. Seeing the crowds, he, that is, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then it goes on. The multitudes were attracted to Jesus as a result of the most successful evangelistic tour that Jesus had just conducted throughout the whole region of Galilee. His preaching, his teaching, his signs and wonders and miracles and acts of demonstrating his transcendent power over the forces of the enemy was a a very attractive thing to behold and to watch and to witness. And many crowds followed him. And they came from afar, not just from the Galilean region, but from further afield, from Judea and even from across the Jordan. This was an evangelist's dream come true. But now Jesus, who is not just the greatest evangelist, but the greatest Bible teacher, changes his modus operandus. He he turns his back, in a way, on the great crowds and goes to a solitary place where his disciples could be with him And now, the greatest evangelist forever dignifies the teaching ministry with the words recorded by Matthew. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. Over the last few weeks, we've been building up to this point where we finally begin in Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. What we've been doing up to this point is been preparing you so you can see the context. The kingdom of God has come. Yes, it starts small, but one day the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, is going to spread through all the earth, and it's going to climax, culminate in the regeneration of all things, even the creation itself. But that new creation has already begun in the hearts of those who've surrendered to the kingdom, And Jesus calls this the born again experience where the new creation begins in your heart as you surrender your life to the rule of God. And in particular, this surrender is worked out in turning to the Lord in repentance and faith. Regeneration is linked to repentance and faith and we've been dealing with all those things. Now we are almost ready to go into the substance of the Sermon on the Mount, but there's one more thing to cover, and that is discipleship. You will notice that the sermon is addressed to Jesus' disciples. In, in a clear way, many many people were following him, and I suppose some would suggest that's discipleship, but it was not really because they had not identified who Jesus was. They had not had that kingdom experience in their hearts. They'd not repented, they'd not believed, and they had not drawn close to Jesus. They were attracted by other things. So right now, in the final stages of preparing your heart to hear this wonderful message of Jesus that covers Matthew 5 through to Matthew 7, So we might approach this material and this sermon, the greatest sermon ever told, to have our hearts in that right place, to be receptive and ready to receive more of Jesus, more of the kingdom, that our lives would be transformed from the inside out. We have to look at what it means to be a disciple. And I've chosen to approach this topic from one perspective. It's perhaps the most important perspective of all. It's where all true discipleship begins and ends. The disciples desire. Do you know that what your heart trusts in, I mean truly trusts in, not, not just what you believe or what you hold, perhaps in in your understanding, in your mind, but what your heart actually trusts in is what shapes you. Did you know that what you truly treasure, even more than some of the things that you might believe, but what you truly treasure, those truths that you hold in your mind, those truths that you treasure in your heart, what you truly desire, that's what makes the difference. That is where your heart will truly be. Now, the problem is, in those days uh, and today, even within the Bible-believing community, so much of our Christianity is held in in our minds. We, We believe the right things, and yet we find our hearts lie elsewhere. Our minds might say one thing, God loves me, Jesus died for me, I'm saved, he, Jesus is coming again, but but our hearts are left behind. Our hearts have not yet fully committed to Christ uh, and this is a matter of desire. I want to provoke your, your desire today. Now, Being a born-again believer, you already have a desire, an inclination to God, a desire that is capable of being developed until it is fully developed to the point when you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, you're passionate about the kingdom, and you demonstrate God's love to your neighbor. That's where God wants us to be. Timothy Keller, uh, a great preacher who runs a church in Manhattan, in New York, tells a story of when he was a younger preacher and was in charge of a number of young people in the church. And one of these was a young woman of 15 years, years of old, and she was having problems. You might describe it today, she's mental health problems, I don't know, but certainly she was having problems. She was, she was going through times of depression, times of doubt and anxiety, And he sat down with her like any good pastor would and began to say, you know, don't you know that God loves you? Don't you know that Jesus died for you? That he saved you? And uh, she said, yes, I know these things. But this is what she went on to say. What good is it if God loves me and no boy will even look at me? Interesting, interesting, her heart goes out to her. Not just that the desire to be attractive to members of the opposite sex amongst young people and so on, th- those things are not wrong. But clearly, this young girl had put her trust in, her dependence on, having boys like her and take her out. And what a position to be in, because she was saying, my life has no value unless there is a boy in my life, unless I am popular and people want to be with me, because my life depends, my satisfaction, my self-image, my ability to feel good about myself depends on someone else. Now, we can multiply that in many, many ways, not just in relationships, finances, career, anything that our culture prizes and says, this is what makes you happy. This is what makes you fulfilled. And as long as you believe that God loves you, but don't believe that you can trust to his love to the point where your identity, your security, your purpose, your impact, your joy, your satisfaction flows from him, you will always be a slave to things other than God. You will put your trust in what ultimately is an idol. And I can tell you something about two things about idols. Number one, they're not the real thing. If the love of a boy will fill you and thrill you and make you come alive. How much more will the love of God in Christ Jesus satisfy your soul because he is the real thing? Secondly, an idol will always fail you. It cannot deliver. And if it does, it's short term. And there's no way of living your life. That's no way of living your life. So I say to you today... Has Jesus won your heart, truly speaking? Because if he hasn't really won your heart, you can believe all the right things, but your heart will be taking you, your desires will be taking you away. Your cell leader, your Bible study sermons will be saying, This is the way to go, but your heart's saying, Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that, but this is the true desire. Of my heart. And one of the ways of finding what your true desires are, what the true desires of your heart, is to ask yourself what if I could get this one thing, this one thing popularity, success, money, marriage, children, one thing. That will make me happy. If that is not God, then Jesus hasn't really won your heart. But you see, there's all kinds of things going on in our minds, and I know what you're thinking, but it's all very well. Why can't I have both? But the point is, it's about realizing that the loves of your heart are being dictated to you by forces and ideas and values outside of you imposed upon you by culture and until you see that the only escape from that is to have God's ideas and what God values imposed upon your life, it's going to be imposed on you one way, either you're going to be pressed into the mold of this world's thinking, which therein lies despair and anguish, or you're going to conform to the pattern that we see in Jesus. One way or another, you're going to conform to a pattern. But the pattern that will release you, the pattern that will bring true freedom to you, the pattern that will bring everything that your heart truly longs for is set by a person whose name is Jesus who loves you more than any boy could ever love you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. There is nothing that you can do to make him love you more or love you less. That is an unbreakable love and it will bring you into the eternal kingdom of God where you'll enjoy the full expression of every wildest satisfaction of your heart that you could possibly imagine. In today's culture, many things are valued and these play out in the lives of believers, even believers, I'm talking to believers, not just to those who don't know Jesus, but to believers. These things are played out in your life rather like a script writer who has already created a narrative, a script for your life, which you must follow to have all the things that our culture values and says you can have and says you must have and says that if you do have them, you're going to be happy, you're going to be satisfied, you're going to be fulfilled, you're going to be free. There are high value items in our culture, but in the kingdom, often culture's high values are the Bible's low values, the secondary values. It's like somebody switched the price tags, things that God values and that when we see the gold of these values we, we, we would really be able to value them as they should be valued, but it's like at an auction where high-value things are low with a low ticket price and, 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 and low-value things have a high ticket price, and we pay a high price to have low-value things. And the truth is, the truth is, by comparison, the yoke of Jesus is easy. And so we can have, by faith and faithfulness, these high value things. Jesus put it this way. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're preaching to the heart today. Your heart must be ready to hear the teaching of Jesus, and it begins with what you are valuing. Jesus says, where your treasure is, what you value, what you, what you treasure that's where your heart will be. So the change that needs to come is where we value and treasure Jesus and his kingdom and the spiritual life more than anything else and then the desires of our heart will be directed in the right direction. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's in the Sermon on the Mount and we're having a bit of a preview of it today, Matthew 6 and verse 21. Um, And there the context is money. But money standing for mammon, mammon being an idol. And and, and this is a very relevant passage for us in the 21st century. Money. Why would somebody put their trust in money? Well, we want it because we believe it can give us something. And it can give us something. In fact, most of the things that we desire are legitimate in the right order. It's not money first, it's God, God first, and then finances will flow from that and they will be in the right order. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money itself. The truth is money can give you something, but what Jesus alone can give you, no money in the world can buy. You can be richer than Bill Gates and live in misery and agony on the inside. Money cannot buy you peace of mind. It might buy you education. It might buy you influence. It might buy you a certain level of health and comfort. But it cannot buy the deepest, what your heart most deeply longs for. It it, it doesn't satisfy. Putting your trust in money or relationships or anything else, success, career, marriage, children, family, putting your trust in anything other than Christ will make you a driven, fearful, and anxious person. Why? Well, after all, you can fight all of your life and never get the financial level that you dreamed about. And if you do, it can be taken away by the taxman, the swindler, The economic downturn or major financial collapse or even your health may fail. You may find the most ideal partner. That partner may be separated from you, may not be faithful. And so you are depending on things that that cannot deliver and that are changeable and not permanent. No wonder there is such a rise in our society of what we call mental health issues. Depression, anxiety, fear and so on. None of this is guaranteed, but if you achieve these things, they they will never really satisfy you and, like every other idol, will fail you in the end. So, what's the answer? Desire. The true spiritual desire that leads to a life of delightful discipleship. So I want you to ask yourself a question today. Do you want to go deeper? You might say, I want to go. How can I go deeper? How can I come to a place where my desires are for Christ alone, the kingdom of God, and that Jesus means more to me than all the world so that if I was able to gain the whole world, I would still not exchange, I I, I would exchange it all for Christ. How can I get to the place where Jesus means to me, I mean, really means to me, more than all the world, and where I can be sure that it will never disappoint me. Never disappoint me, not... In the beginning, the middle, or the end. Now for that we need to go to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1 in that first verse. So come with me to that scene all those years ago, not unlike what is on the screen behind me. Here we have a picture from what is called the Mount of Beatitudes, the traditional place where we're told the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. Just on those gentle slopes outside of Capernaum, we can see the Galilean hills. We have a little glimpse also of the Sea of Galilee. Come with me and let us sit together at the feet of Jesus. Matthew 5 and verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, this tells me that it's a big, big theme in the Gospels, that Jesus has two major thrusts in his ministry. One is preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to the multitudes, but also that intense personal time with his disciples. And actually, he spent more, most of his time with his 12. He was raising them up to be apostles, to preach, and to teach, and to carry the gospel. But it wasn't just for him to raise up 12 unique apostles. He was setting down the principle of discipleship, which in our church is expressed through a strategy, a model, a vision called the cell vision, where we in smaller groups sit together under the help of the cell leader and the leadership of the Holy Spirit sit together at the feet of Jesus to grow as disciples, to be equipped as disciples, not just to be disciples becoming more like Jesus every day, but to be disciple makers for others. The theme is often in in Scripture, in the Gospels, Jesus turns from the crowds and concentrates on his disciples. And so Jesus, seeing the crowds, and this is a transition. This is the moment he says, right, we've preached to the multitudes. Now I want to disciple these new believers. That's where we are in our church program at the moment as we flow through. We do it all, win, consolidate, disciple, and send. We do it all continuously, but we're focusing on those people who've recently come to Christ, and never, never when we do that, do we not, never fails, but that we also challenge and refresh our own hearts and we come back to the basics of repentance and faith and loving God and and increasing our passion for Jesus and recommitting and dedicating our lives to Christ. Now, those people who were the crowds, they were attracted, I think, uh, for superficial things. I mean, you know, there was nothing. There was no Netflix series to watch, uh, and there wasn't even this extraordinary script, uh, uh, you know, which, which we've seen recently on, on the on the on the BBC with that um, with that program. What's oh, that one? Who is H? And all that. Oh, I was just testing line of duty. Okay, that came from the side here. No, no, this uh, preaching presentation of Jesus was quite literally. At that time, the greatest show on earth. It had everything you ever wanted. And they were attracted too because of the healings and and, and because of the controversy. Well, this guy, hasn't even been to Bible college. And look, he can preach better than any ordained minister. Those people can't heal the sick and raise the dead, but this one can. Come and have a look. Roll up, roll up, everybody. Now, it was more than a show, I know, but people could take it as that. Now, these disciples are different. Their attachment, the crowds, are superficial. But these disciples had gone deeper. They were defined by their desire. Let's see how it plays out. Get this in the picture. Many crowds, Jesus is very popular, everybody knows him. So he secretes himself away, up onto a mountain slope. His disciples see him, follow him, and maybe other crowds say, is there going to be another show today? Maybe they gathered as well. But, but Jesus goes to a certain spot, not unlike what you see on the screen, where there's maybe a natural amphitheater, where his voice would carry by speaking in the right direction of the wind and, uh, and just letting the sound of, uh, bounce off some of the natural environment. And so it was all carefully chosen. But at a certain point, When Jesus reaches a certain place, he sits down. So what? Well, he wasn't sitting down for a picnic. When Jesus sat down, it signaled something to any Jewish mind of the day. When a religious teacher sits down, he is saying, I'm going to teach you. When Jesus preached, In Galilee, in Nazareth, the first sermon, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He read the scripture, then he sat down and his sermon summarized was, this day has this scripture been fulfilled in your hearing. Sit to teach. The rabbis sat to teach. Early excavations of early synagogues from this period show such a thing known as Moses' seat, where archaeologists suggest, was where the rabbis sat to teach. Remember, Moses' seat, we'll come back to that, especially when we're talking about the law of Moses and Jesus' authority over the law of Moses. But at this point, the signal was clear. He's getting ready to teach. And so the disciples were excited. He's getting ready to teach, let's go. And so they gather around him, sit at his feet, so they could hear his teaching. Why? They had desire. They had desire. And Matthew underscores the significance of this moment by using this phrase, Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach them saying. Now, if you're going to say something, you can really, of course, open your mouth to do it. But when when, uh, the, the Jewish writers used this phrase, opening your mouth to speak, it was indicating that something important was going to be said. Something coming from a person of authority, a solemn saying, an authoritative word, an important message was going to be made. It was going to be said. And the disciples picked up on that. And their attention was 100% on Jesus. Why? Because of their spiritual desire. They came to him. You know, that's one of the big tests of discipleship. Even in our really scaled down version of what we do in training and mentoring, I don't give much time to people who do not pursue Christ. I will do it, I'll help them. But when it comes to saying, like, I'm going to pour out my life, I'm going to share with somebody every, everything that I can possibly, and I've done it for countless numbers of people over the last 30 years, but always to those who have come and desired and want to draw from me everything that I might be able to pour into their lives. And it's the same with you as disciple-makers. And so the very fact that they would come, seek it out. These aren't those who have to be called six times before any cell meeting to say, are you going to be there? And 26 times after is, well, you know, we love you anyway, even if you weren't there. These are people who are driven by a holy desire, a desire that comes from heaven, a desire that manifests first in the regenerated, the born again life, the inclination towards God, which is a gift of God, a deep hunger that remains the truest Definition of you. Who are you? I am a disciple hungry for the kingdom of God. I desire Jesus. I want to be near him. I'm going to pursue him and I'm going to give him everything I have. Why? Because you have the disciples' desire. The sayings of Jesus recorded in Matthew are not in chronological order necessarily. Therefore, I wonder if these disciples, where do they get this desire from and how has it been activated in their life? I wonder if they had already heard those remarkable words of Jesus, which will draw us closer to him and will bring out our desire for him more than many other words. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 and 30 say, this is Jesus speaking. Come to me, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest from anguish. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, my kingdom upon you, the yoke of my kingdom, not the religious yoke of the scribes and Pharisees, not the cultural yoke of cultural standards, but my yoke, the yoke of the kingdom. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your anguished souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Easy yoke. When you look at what that yoke means in one place, Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus says, therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard of the kingdom is so high that you could wonder how it could be anything other than a really heavy yoke. Now, the difference is love. Difference is desire. If you love doing something, you're passionate about it. All the deepest and most burdensome duties seem as nothing because it's an overflow. It's an expression of your love. It's a labor of love. You can't pay people to do it. Some of you who serve God as cell leaders, particularly those of you who are taken up with full-time employment outside of the church. Your labor of love is a labor of love, and I've seen you work, I've seen you give yourself with such a passion that I could not pay any single staff member to have the same passion. Of course, they will because they are following Christ, but money can't buy that. The love of a mother for a family, the love... Other husband for wife and and so on, you will go not just the extra miles but the extra hundred miles because of your desire, because of your love, your delight is to serve, your delight is to love, your delight is to satisfy the desires of your beloved. The yoke is easy. Now slipping on to another passage. And, uh, and this, I, I really like to make a strong point, uh, Luke chapter 9. Now, I make this point many times in my book, um, people with a passion, and also usually when I refer to discipleship teaching and preaching, because we're not the only ones who preach and teach discipleship. And thank God there are more and more churches doing it. But sometimes I hear it presented in a way that, that jars with me. Here it is. Let me read for you. Matthew, Mark 9, verses 23 to 25. Let me read the passage. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, his soul, his own life? In other words, you can gain the whole world, and you will never discover what your soul really thirsts for, the very thing you've been created for, and nothing else will satisfy other than that. And of course, that's Jesus, that's God, that's the Holy Spirit. But here's how some preachers start out. They want to make a speech about discipleship. They say, Jesus did not come to call people to make decisions, but make disciples, You may be a believer, but are you a disciple? If you want to be a disciple, here's what you have to do. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. I've heard sermons like that. And that's true, but that's not the whole truth. In fact, a vital part, the vital part of that truth is missing because Jesus did not begin by saying, take up your cross and follow me. He started by saying, if anyone desires to come after me." The desire is the motivation behind discipleship, and so it begins with spiritual desire. Now, the word that is used in Matthew's text, which is written in Greek, is a word that doesn't describe just ordinary desire. Yeah, I want to, but I'm not so sure. Yeah, I'd like to have a better prayer life, but, you know, there's something good on the telly. This wanting to, this desiring to is a very specialized word, and I'm not so sure that there is an equivalent word in English. Frankly, if anyone would come after me here in the English ESV, is very weak And we use wanting and willing of so many different things, but the word used here is a special kind of wanting, a special kind of desire. It is a desire that is so strong that it becomes the overriding and dominant passion of your life. That you are willing to put everything into it, the whole of your life, to pursue this And this alone, above everything else, that's what it means to desire. How can we desire him like that? Well, you are already well ahead if you're born again. Because God has taken that old nature that doesn't desire God, that is hard against God, that rejects God, that believes all the wrong things. God has taken out that old heart and given you a new heart, a heart that is full of the passion of Jesus. As you sit here today and listening to me, if you are a true believer today, I can tell you the truest part of you, deep down on the inside of you, is a passion for God that is permanent and will never ever let you down. That's what it means to be born born again. Now, it doesn't mean automatically that it all manifests, but the whole point about this is to stir up that desire. And how do you do that? By meditating, by reflecting on the gospel. Whole range of things. Let me just give you one thing. When you remember that Jesus died for you, That he laid aside his majesty. That he took up our sin. Endured everything for us as if he was only doing it for you, only doing it for me together but also individually. He loved you enough to go through that. To leave his majestic home in heaven and to come to sit where we sit to be subjected to all that he was subjected to. Until finally the hands that he created were used against him to crucify him. And he did it all for you. He did it for love. And that love is unbreakable. That love is constant. It's unfailing. Nothing you will ever do will stop him loving you. And that love will endure and carry you through into the eternal kingdom of God When you see what he went through and and what he has given to you, something is gonna happen, your heart's gonna melt, and you're gonna say, God, I desire that. Everybody, in one way or another, I would say, perhaps it's a bit of a sweeping statement, but I think it's true very largely. We're all looking for an unfailing, inseparable love that depends not on what we can do, or achieve, that depends not on our intrinsic beauty or attraction, but depends on the love of the beloved in taking us and holding us close to himself. When you get to that point, You are willing to take up your cross and deny yourself because you know in dying you live and in denying yourself you find your life. No longer having to strive to make yourself acceptable to God or in fact acceptable to anybody else. Because if God is for you, what does it matter what anybody else thinks about you? If your understanding of who you are is defined by the love of Christ, you won't have to go on a date to feel good about yourself. And by the way, just as an aside, you won't have to worry about dates when people see that you are so self assured not arrogant but that your your self image is strong and that you value yourself and that you consider yourself to be highly valued that will attract the boys from every bush every corner every part of london and next problem you will have is how to beat them off and i will help you don't don't i will i'll help you get rid of some of them all right then. okay You don't have to satisfy others or be defined by their opinion of you. No longer living in fear and shame of the things that you should never have done but you did and the things that you should have done but you didn't do. Never having to live there again. Never having to strive to that place of assurance of forgiveness of sins or acceptance by a holy God. Total release from the pressure of trying to make life work without God. The God who created you, the God who loves you, the God who died for you in Christ, and the God who lives for you to bring you to eternal life. That will create a desire. And also, that desire will never will never be disappointed. The disciples' desire never ends up fruitless or frustrated. We may have to go through lots of things, including persecutions and all the stuff. We don't get what we necessarily long for uh, by our own definition and understanding, but he will be with us through it all. And in the end, we're going to see the blessings of the kingdom of God flow in our lives and, and the temporal blessings Many of them are there, secondary things that God does want to give you, but only when we put him first. And then whether we get those things or not, we're going to be so like Jesus, so satisfied with his likeness in us and and even more satisfied with him because we have desired him and the desire of our hearts has been satisfied. The honor of putting Christ first, even when life does not turn out as we first dreamed it would. This life, this quality of life, is far in excess of anything you could ever dream of. The greatest reward of all, when a disciple is fully trained, he'll be like his master. I've shared with you the scripture that God used to call me Into the kingdom. John chapter 5, where Jesus heals the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And his question to this man who'd been there 38 years and nobody was there to help him was this. In the old version, the authorized version, it was, Wilt thou be made whole? New versions don't kind of cut it when they say, Do you want to get better? I like the old version. And the preacher that spoke God's word the night I was called back in December 1971 was a venerable evangelical preacher, great preacher touring various mission halls in the north of England, visited a town called Wigton just outside of Carlisle, And he said, Jesus asks you, Wilt thou be made whole? Let me explain that to you. Whole is actually the word for salvation. It's the same word as saved and healed. Be whole. And he said, you know, when Jesus said you want to be whole, he was saying, do you want to be, to become like me? Meaning, Jesus was the only fully whole, sound person that has ever lived. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take your life, reshape your life, transform your life, heal your life, clean your life, and make your life beautiful so that you can be like me. When a disciple is fully trained, he becomes like his master. And I can still remember it now. I was confused. I didn't know very much, but those words the Holy Spirit took and spoke deep in my heart and there was a response, a response that astonished me. And the response from my heart, with all of my heart was, yes, I want to be like you, Jesus. That's the disciple's desire. It's supernatural. And when you've seen him, You fall in love with him. And the new passions of your heart drive out the old passions, just as the old Puritans used to talk about the expulsive power of a new affection. And next week when we come down to this, I want us to come with that attitude of having encountered Christ to say, Jesus, I want to be like you. Help me understand Thank God that the Sermon on the Mount is not a test for your salvation or a condition of your salvation. It's an invitation by Jesus to have your life shaped so that you become like him. Amen and amen. Now, we haven't finished. I finished my sermon, although I haven't quite finished because the end of the sermon is going to be this song a song of response you laid aside, your majesty. But before we, we get there, yeah, let's, let's, let's get, get ready for it and be ready to come straight in, into it. Before we sing the song, I, I, I want to ask a question. No, before the question, I want to say something. It's time for you to encounter Christ in a new way, a deep way. I understood, I got news that this morning when we sang this song this morning, somebody was so full of the presence of God that they actually had a vision of Jesus. They saw at least part of him. Now you may not get a visual impression, but God wants to make a heart. Everybody standing, would you please stand. God wants the eyes of your understanding to be opened, that you will see Jesus because when you see him, you're gonna love him. You're gonna fall in love with him again. You're gonna have your first love or for the first time in your life, you're gonna know what it means to be so, so passionately in love with Christ that you will desire him more than everything else, more than your job, more than your family, more than fame, more than fortune, all those things that are taking you away from the kingdom of God. Men, listen to me, you'll get your encounter before too long. But many men's hearts are cold because they love their car, they love their football team, they love their income, they love their house or the desire for other things. Men, get back to God. Love him as the savior of your soul, the captain of your soul. And you will find your life will change. When things come back in order, you'll know what it is to live, not just in the kingdom, but in the fruits and rewards of the kingdom of God as well. Amen.